Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, Canada. And that's how we're continuing to define ourselves in relation to the state. At least for now. We can run away from the state. Can we run away from the state? I mean, arguably, no. That's mainly the problem. Where would we go? Exactly. On CIUT 89.5 FM. Which has its fundraiser coming up next week. The Ride the Airwaves? Is it called Ride the Airwaves? Don't bastardize it. All right. So if you want to donate, you can go to CIUT.FM, donate early, or donate next week. Toronto's only independent radio station on the FM dial. Worth your money. We're also on many community radio stations around the country, so thanks a lot for playing us there, wherever you happen to be. My name is David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter. Lauren Elizabeth Corlator is still at COP26. This is a really COP-based show. The whole show is in some way related, and it's from an outsider's perspective, you know? Well, I'm going to lead Stefan through a series of questions about that I have just about the reporting about COP, and Stefan is going to offer me some extremely pointed uh, and very entertaining answers that I don't even have to edit this audio. That's how on point his answers are going to be. And uh, they're currently trying to draft a document. That's right. That's what they're doing there. Yes. That's why they've gathered. That's why they've gathered. They're looking for a document. Well, I mean, they're trying to create... I don't know they're looking for a document. I think no, they're, they're searching for a document. <laughs> I think they're hopefully writing the document. And they're going to sign the document. Ideally. Then Stefan's going to interview Bronwyn Tucker. Yes. From Oil Change International. Yes. Wonderful organization. Yes. Why are they wonderful? Uh, because they are working to get the world off of oil. And uh, Bronwyn Tucker, what's her role there? The public finance campaign co-manager. What are you going to be talking about? One of the pieces of good news that came out of COP. There's not a lot of good news that come out of COP, but one of the actually exciting pieces of good news that came out. That that good news is that Canada has decided to stop, has declared that we'll stop financing fossil fuels overseas. Well, we'll stop our own public financing. What was was the organization through which... What was the what was the arm through which they were doing that? The the major one, which again in the interview we'll get through get into, uh, is Export Development Canada. Right. This is specifically Canada trying to make money off developing those generating stations in other countries, or extracting the resources, or anything to do with fossil fuels. Is that right? Or yes, extraction and production. But first, did you have something you wanted to say in general about COP twenty six? Or um, yeah, very quickly. Okay. It's mostly just, and if you listen to the show, you are probably not the kind of people who might be like this, but, you know, if you have only listened to the headlines uh, coming out of COP or only listened to the small snippets, you know, that most mainstream news might bring you, you've likely heard a lot about the hundreds of commitments that countries have put forth. You know, every country has has been required to come up and be like, this is what we're going to do. And you've probably heard some of the bigger ones. You've probably heard about some of the other things we'll talk about, including, you know, Mark Carney's $130 trillion uh, net zero with banks pledge. This is a time when a lot of different countries and companies are using this opportunity to say, we're going to do a lot of stuff. And and if you only hear the headlines, you can leave it being like, oh, man, look at all this great work that's being done. This is really exciting. And it's not until you sort of start listening to the voices of the people who are at COP or who have been trying to you know, get their voices heard within these rooms that you realize just how hard the people have been fighting on the ground in Glasgow to try to get these rich nations to actually take responsibility for their emissions. You know, it's one thing for all these nations to sort of come out and say, look, we're going to cut emissions in 30 by, in the next 30 years, or we'll have another target about some, something. But If there is one place I would encourage people to pay attention to, it's the $100 billion 
that was at, that has been on the table since Copenhagen 12 years ago and to be given from you know richer nations uh, to help uh, poor nations decarbonize their grids and their societies. And they made a pledge to channel $100 billion a year to less wealthy nations by 2020. So they've already missed that deadline. In 2019, uh, $80 billion was contributed, uh, which is up from, from $78 billion in 2018. And most of the money came from public grants or loans transferred either from one country to another directly or through funds from multilateral development banks. So that's a combination of loans and grants. Yes. But if you loan money to a country, you want that money back. The Mark Carney $130 trillion bank alliance. Mm -hmm. Banks have come together. Several, many banks have signed a net zero pledge saying $130 trillion. They control $130 trillion. Yes. And they've made a net zero pledge. Yes. Does it mean anything? It's hard to say it doesn't mean anything. An interview, uh, actually a pretty good interview was sent to me by a friend of the show, Andre Forsyth. Interview with Mark Carney uh, and Matt Galloway on The Current. And the one thing I'll give Mark Carney is that when pushed, and i got to say huge credit to Matt Galloway for pushing him as much as he did, Carney's argument was basically that this agreement must be built on. Like these banks at $130 trillion all coming to the table and saying, we will do this by, 20, by 2050, means they now must start actually showing how they will do it. Like, does it matter? Probably, you know? But at the same time, you know, these are the banks that have absolutely no interest in dismantling the systems that are destroying our housing industry or the earth in any other of the hundreds of ways that they are still financing. You know, I think they are realizing that the winds are turning. And I think that this and we'll see how much actually how fast these efforts come out. But you know, these are the banks that are still funding, you know, the not the gas pipeline going through Wet'suwet'en, you know, they're still funding the TMX. And, you know, the speed is gonna be the big question. By 2050, it's very, very different to reduce emissions by 50% over the next nine years and then phase out the next 50 over the next 20 than it is to phase out 10% over the next nine years and then do much heavy lifting much later. Because if you do not see a steep, 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 steep curve, that 1.5 that we talked about earlier is absolutely not being hit. So these banks are going net zero. And, and so they've just, they've just said that they will. Each bank will individually determine how it will achieve net zero. They're going to have to invest. They're going to invest a lot in carbon capture, I guess, right? Is it either technologies that are sucking carbon out of the air or sucking carbon out of fossil fuel burning pipes as it's coming out of the pipe? Will they buy forests to say that that's contributing to their reductions? I mean, this is the big question. How they decide to understand what net zero means, which again is the major, major criticism of net zero. If one bank would come out and say, we are going to actually aim to have actually zero emissions. That would be a very interesting conversation to see how you could actually manage. So something came out recently, Brazil changed 
they 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 revised its 2005 levels. So so Brazil right. Brazil under Bolsonaro is coming out like we're going to cut our emissions by 50% of 2005 levels. But then they but that that happened after they went back and revised their 2005 levels. Let's be real. Every nation does this and it's part of the reason why what we should actually care about is not specifically percentage decrease from some particular year because Canada still chooses from its highest year too. Yeah, but you were going on about how it should be 1990 levels. Now, yeah. you're, saying, now you're saying that the whole yearly thing is, is, is useless. No, no, it's not useless. Ultimately, what matters is how much emissions are increasing into the atmosphere. And until that starts sharply decreasing, we're not doing enough. Like, it doesn't matter how many different ways different countries find to claim that they're reducing emissions. If the actual amount of emissions is continuing to add carbon into the atmosphere, we are not doing enough. And we have yet to hit a moment where we are even, you know, I I believe the closest we've plateaued in terms of how many emissions we've released each year for the past few years. And that was a a recent uh, study claimed that that was a slight change from what we had previously understood. But that's still not decreasing and it's still adding tons of carbon to the atmosphere. What was a slight change from what we previously understood? We pump out a certain amount of emissions into the atmosphere each year. And it was understanding that that was had been increasing, you know, pretty steadily throughout time. It now it is now believed some new some new modeling seems to think that may perhaps the last four or five years that number hasn't actively increased. Our yearly emissions, global yearly emissions. Yes, exactly. But you know, but that does mean the the actual concentration of emissions is still increasing. Yeah, the notion of loss and damage. I think so. Loss and damage is is equa- is being equated by grist here with adaptation. So, when we're talking about countries needing money for loss and damage, what's needed is is for these countries to be able to survive the, the coming changes, essentially, and those that have already happened. Right, rebuild so and that, ideally re- rebuild from destruction, and ideally do so in a way that protects. And the unbelievable thing here is how much money even. The state is already using. The state is spending $10 billion to build seawalls, tens of billions tens of billions of dollars to build multiple seawalls around its around different parts of its coastline as a way to protect itself. That's adaptation. Yeah. And so loss and damage, adaptation, these are not things investors can can make money off of. This is money that just needs to be given to countries. I mean, could you make money off some forms of adaptation? Probably. Um, you know, could you theoretically invest in the country and the companies that are doing some of this rebuilding also probably, but I don't think that's ultimately the spirit of it. No, the spirit of it is that wealthy nations have caused this problem. Poor nations are feeling the brunt of this problem. And so real action is needed and support for them is needed. Climate finance could be more, could be more debt bondage. If banks and rich people and rich countries loan money to poorer countries to deal with climate change, they could be in more debt bondage. Yes, that unquestionably could occur for sure. So the International Energy Agency, right, which we were praising or at least like mentioning, we mentioned a couple of times recently about how they had changed their tune a little bit. Yes, they after um, a long time of basically being at service to oil, they came out and said that significant change needs to be had. Yes, and now and now during COP twenty six, they've let out, they've put out a press release saying 
that it's a landmark moment, that it's the first time that governments have come forward with targets, targets of sufficient ambition to hold global warming below two degrees Celsius, right? And so researchers from Melbourne calculated that. Uh, it would be 1.8, 1.9, just based on what's been stated at COP so far. Right. And so it's kind of wild, though. I mean, it seems strange for, for, for organizations and respected bodies to come out and be like, oh, this is great that, that all that this talk sounds like 1.8, right? I mean, it's way, way, way further than you know we've ever been. Right. Something can be both a landmark achievement and vastly below what we actually need. Like both both things can be true. So I I mentioned last week that India specifically, India sort of said that they would be net zero by 2070 and that they would cut like the do, do half renewables by 2030 or something. But I didn't realize that at, they were actually saying that they would only do that if they got a, hundred, a trillion dollars by 2030, just just India. So India was like, yeah, we'll do all this stuff. However, right. we need we alone need one trillion dollars. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's they do, though. They, they, they do. They certainly do for sure. You know, that is probably not going to happen. So, you know, given that we can't give we can't give the world one hundred billion dollars a year. The chances are that India alone would get one trillion <laughs> by 2030 is pretty low. This is so. This came out just recently. What does it mean? Do you want me to talk about? So the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. What is the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance? So it's an agreement uh, led by Costa Rica and Denmark, and now includes France, Greenland, Ireland, Sweden, Wales, and just interestingly, the province of Quebec as core members. And then California and Portugal and New Zealand are associate members. And then as my favorite, Italy, which joined as a quote unquote friend of the alliance. Yeah, I don't understand what any of this means. I mean, I think it means how much they are committed to doing what they've agreed to do. And what have they agreed to do? They've committed to end new exploration permits in their country. Oh, right. Because before, like a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned Quebec had just announced... Yes. They will not be exploring for any more oil and gas on their province. They'll yeah. not be extracting anymore. And so... Or they won't be exploring anymore? They won't be extracting anymore? No new exploration permits. Okay. Um, associate members must demonstrate efforts towards an oil and gas phase-out. So that's that middle ground. And it doesn't say here what the friends have to do. But... So And so what matters about this? Oh, well, man, it is like... So the thing about all of these commitments is that so many of them are coming out from places that are completely refusing to consider not still explore exploring like the states is currently still opening up other places to drill off off the off its coast right like so you have all these talk talks about um about investments into green energy or in green stuff and how that happens but most of these countries almost all of these countries are still totally planning on continually finding more ways to exploit their own fossil fuels on their own land in in the same way that canada has agreed to stop funding you know externally but not internally in the beyond oil and gas alliance these guys are saying we're not going to look we're never we're not even going to look for anymore yeah they're done on their lands no more at all but but what's new about this? No, it's never happened before. There's oh. never been a group okay. of countries that have come together to say this. No agreement whatsoever like this. Yeah, 
Like okay. this is so a. The, so the first time in in world history, we have, like, some countries. It's like four, five countries. Uh, it's like six. In a province, uh, saying we're not going to look for any more. But the thing, but the thing is, California is still looking for. They're still issuing leases. California. Well, California is not a core member. It is an member. associate member. They're an associate member. So yeah. So so they're thinking about maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, what they, that means. well, this this thing that this is why I think it's actually a big deal because it's so hard to get anyone to say they might do this, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's you know speaks volumes at the, you know it's Costa Rica and Denmark and then France, Greenland, Ireland, Sweden, and Wales and Quebec, right? Like these are those countries said we're not looking for any more fuels. Yeah. But California, which is still looking for fuels, has said. Oh, this is an interesting alliance. Maybe we'll think about this. Yeah, we will, they have to show that they have a plan towards it. To be allowed into the alliance. Yes. So. But in the interview you will hear uh, about uh, with, with Bronwyn, she mentions that there might be one other piece of good news coming from the COP. That might be the other big piece of good news. And yeah. this is that big piece of good news. Mm. You know, uh, it's, a, it's been called by other members of Oil Change International a turning point and... You know, if it can convince other countries and regions to join, it pushes, uh, you know, members towards more ambition. And so, yeah, it's like, I, I think, I, I, I don't know whether, or not the, I, I would argue that the agreement to not fa- fund might be a bigger deal because I think it might seem some faster movement in some places. But this is obviously the next gauntlet. And especially if you can start getting, I think what's really smart about this deal is that they're allowing states and provinces to join. So that you don't even you don't necessarily have to get the whole country, but you can start picking away at a country mm. in a way that I think is actually valuable and important. And so just to turn to BC for a second here. The, the province of B.C. has uh, asked each indigenous nation in B.C. about deferring the logging of ancient and rare old-growth trees across 26,000 square kilometers of forest, according to the CBC. Um, but the province has only given all of these First Nations 30 days to discuss it. So it's like, they're, they're, like, they're like, okay, we'll, ta- we'll talk about... Uh, you know, maybe stopping old growth logging, and and you First Nations have to tell us whether we should do that in in thirty days and get back to us. Wow. And I want to just read some statements from uh, the Wet'suwet'en resistance. They they put out a statement of one month since they've reoccupied some territory, trying to stop the uh, coastal gasoline pipeline. They said, uh, Gidimdan clan of the, of the Wet'suwet'en nation are celebrating a one-month reoccupation of traditional Kassiak territory to protect our sacred headwaters, Wet'suwet'en. And so this is the uh, river that feeds the area that's being drilled underneath or that's, uh, that the CGL is attempting to drill underneath. Uh, two, the Wet'suwet'en resistance has already defeated several dirty mega-infrastructure pipeline projects over the last 10 years. And during one month of RCMP brutality on behalf of TC Energy's proposed coastal gasoline pipeline, Coyote Camp has successfully reclaimed unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. Haudenosaunee warriors showed up in solidarity on Wet'suwet'en territory and escorted the RCMP out. In 2019 and 2020, during the raids on Wet'suwet'en territory, 
Their call-outs for solidarity sparked coast-to-coast mobilizations disrupting the machine of empire. We remember that. Huge uh, rail blockades across Canada that people were ripping their hair out about right before COVID. And they say, we're fighting for our children and future generations, and we call on our allies everywhere to rise up in solidarity. And they have action steps listed on their website. And uh, they say, come to the land, host a solidarity rally, pressure government, pressure banks, pressure investors, donate, spread the word. And uh, that's from the uh, Wet'suwet'en Get Him Dan checkpoint in Wet'suwet'en. And so now we're going to take a music break, and Stefan's going to come back and talk with Bronwyn Tucker from Oil Change International about Canada no longer financing fossil fuel abroad. Canada and a bunch of others. And several other countries. How many other countries? 24 countries, including the United States. 24 countries, including the United States. And the UK. Will not be funding any fossil fuels abroad, Dan. Yeah. All right. We are here, as prefaced earlier on the show, with a very exciting interview with Bronwyn Tucker, the public finance campaign co-manager for Oil Change International. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so, you know, this is week three of COP coverage along with other topics, of course, but the reason why we're talking to you specifically is there was some big news. I will say it was the one piece of news coming out of COP that actually had activists excited on Twitter. Out of all the other things is the one piece of news, and we'll get to that in a second. But as a way of introduction, uh, can you just tell us what Oil, Int- Oil Change International does and how you work towards change? Yeah, definitely. So we work on basically getting a just transition from from fossil fuels, and we really focus on the like production side of things, and particularly focus more on oil and gas. And so that looks like kind of yeah pushing for like actual regulations to uh, stop expansion and then have a managed phase out of production. But then also things like working on public finance, like rating different oil companies, climate plans, and yeah, I think basically. We work at the international level, but we have a couple of different regions that are uh, our focuses. And then otherwise, a lot of our kind of like 
theory of change or work is, yeah, kind of two parts. I think first we kind of buy or crowdsource, crowdsource access to a lot of industry data and then share that with, or try to share that with groups that are fighting a specific project or fighting for a specific policy. And then, yeah, I see our role a little bit also as like uh, helping organize other organizations, although that's shifting a little bit, like basically there used to be, this has been less the case in Canada, but internationally, there used to be a lot of focus on coal, but not that many people speaking about oil and gas. So it's like a major climate issue, even though it's obviously huge. And so I feel like a lot of our work was like trying to get other organizations that work on climate to like also do oil and gas or to have better positions on oil and gas. And so that's like shifted a little bit, which is exciting because there is way more groups that are like really focused on fossil fuels and like really thinking about what a transition would look like if it was done in a good way, which is exciting. That's my like, yeah, kind of like 300 foot spiel usually. Awesome. So great. So that helps explain why, why y'all's work were so connected to what happened last week with the announcement. So maybe we could just dive into that for a second. What are the nuts and bolts of this announcement that I've now hyped three times and told the listeners nothing? Yeah. So there was 26 and counting kind of countries and institutions that basically agreed to end their international public finance for fossil fuels. And so this, yeah, I think there's like a couple words there that are probably open to interpretation. So just to unpack a little bit in terms of public finance, it's a bucket of subsidies. It's not all fossil fuel subsidies, but it's any of the like direct like grants, but also loans or guarantees or any other kind of government backed finance that was going to support projects outside of the countries that signed on. And then, yeah, in terms of who signed on, basically it is a small group still. Like we would need maybe more countries to join, but it does represent about $24 billion a year now in terms of money that was going to help build these projects. And yeah, I guess even just since the announcement happened, we have Italy sign on like right before the announcement, the Netherlands has joined today. And that was think basically the whole theory of change anyways is like this is substantial because there's been a ton of language in these kind of like high level agreements around coal for years the g20 mentions ending coal support like every time they meet they haven't touched oil and gas yet and so this is the first like high level political commitment that's touched oil and gas at all whether that's for finance or for other things and so just really trying to like start to help make that a norm in terms of this is a thing you have to talk about you know fossil fuels aren't explicitly mentioned in the Paris Agreement and lots of the change needs to happen at the like city or local government or national government level, but having that replicated and echoed in kind of international agreements is a good sign as well. Awesome. And so it's funny, about two weeks ago, we were on a, a different podcast and we were chatting a little bit about the difference between and your hopes for campaigners and activists to take on more of public finance because right now, as we have seen and has come on the show, there's a lot of focus right now on RBC and, and other private banks. But public financing obviously still puts a ton of money into this. But yeah, I think that people don't know what is entirely meant by the words public financing. So can you tell us what it means and who is giving out this money and how is that happening? Yeah, definitely. And I, yeah, I feel like there's, there's lots of parts to the announcement last week. So I didn't even really cover that, you know, Canada joined this and that was a huge deal because we've actually had them ranked as like top in the G20 for the most public finance for fossil fuels. They've been in the top four for a long time. And then, yeah, this year climbed to the absolute top. And so 
yeah, that's like a kind of a form of fossil fuel subsidy that I don't think very many people in Canada are aware of. And basically that money has mostly almost all been sent by something called Export Development Canada, which is a kind of federal crown corporation that is supposed to help Canadian businesses do business abroad. They laugh like their average $13.6 billion a year in, in oil and gas support. We don't actually know how much of that goes overseas versus staying at home. EDC is kind of like a weird one. Most export credit agencies like it actually only do international finance. There was a loophole put in under after the recession in 2008, which is meant EDC has been also just given lots of money to, to the oil and gas companies at home. And so, yeah, we, the way the government is acting, we don't think it'll cover that domestic finance, but it does make a really good case for saying why, you know, if you're going to end your international finance, why are you continuing at home? And yeah, so in terms of like public finance, I think like when you say old oh, public banks or Export credit agencies, people have generally, they're not very public facing, but yeah, I think they could be really important in terms of like thinking about where we need to get and just like how much infrastructure or like home retrofits or public transit we like need to build to have a transition that is also like helping people and making everywhere a better place to live. You know, I don't actually have uh, any faith in like private banks to do that. And a lot of public banks are still in the kind of like capitalist like world that we live in. And so a lot of them have been really oriented towards supporting private finance to like make more money. So they'll like really often brag about how much private money they're attracting. They're involved in like private public partnerships, like this kind of thing. But there's also lots of models, public banks that are doing things in a different way where they're actually just like helping get the resources to to build, you know, new public utility projects or train lines or things that um, are in the public interest. And basically they could be a model for how we get some of the big stuff that we need done in the next 10 years. And so this step of them or some of them taking their money out of fossil fuels is a really tiny step in that direction to be maybe potentially actually like pretty transformational. Cool. All right. So I think you've touched a little bit on on this and the next question in your answers, but I do want to be a little more uh, pointed about it because I think both, like I said, this was both potentially a, a very big optimistic announcement and yet as with almost any announcement that comes from this government or most governments, it should be met with a significant amount of cynicism. But I want to start optimistic. So why were environmental activists sort of feeling like this one was uniquely good news compared to what we've heard previously? Yeah. What's the case for optimism on this announcement? Yeah, I think just the fact that it has so many countries and it actually deals with oil and gas, which is, you know, unprecedented at like the kind of international level. So just a bit of a like break in that um, armor that hopefully can make more room for other agreements that actually talk about oil and gas. And then second, also just like the really direct projects that this money has helped make happen. So a lot of uh, like some of EDC's money was going to Enbridge in the States. So uh, that includes things like Line 3 pipeline that land defenders have been fighting. It was going to fracking in Colombia that similarly had a lot of community opposition. In all of the countries, the announcement also included the UK and the US and some other heavy hitters. And so all of those countries have really helped projects happen abroad that have been really damaging to Indigenous rights and human health and like outside of the climate thing. And so I think just like first and foremost, a victory for those communities who now hopefully we'll see slightly less projects go forward and, and hopefully also can create some momentum for 
more of that finance to be shut off. Awesome. And on the flip side, where does this fall short? And I know in some of your communications, there was the ways that it needs to be improved. So it'd be great if we could talk about that as well. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's like the, the biggest thing in the language that's a flag is um, that they talk about unabated fossil fuel finance. And so unabated basically means finance, like fossil fuel projects where you're not like also doing carbon capture and storage or offsets or some way to get rid of those emissions, which is basically the app just not real. Like those technologies are mostly unproven or for the, in the case of offsets, they're really associated with like land grab and, and other horrible things. And yeah, it just does not actually put us on a pathway to getting the emissions cut that we need. And so that's a concern. I think it'll just like remain to be seen how much governments like really push for a ton of finance for carbon capture and storage and these other things basically like those tech there's quite like five commercial scale carbon capture and storage projects that are not involving yeah basically there's just very few of them and in the data we keep there hasn't actually been a ton of public finance for ccs yet but obviously they're really involved in all these like net zero promises and discourse that's happening and so it could still leave a big door open to, for them to do a lot of that finance. And so that's something we'll definitely work to close. And then, yeah, I think the other like biggest limitation is just that it's, yeah, pretty hypocritical for these countries in some cases that still have a ton of oil and gas subsidies and support at home to like, not have that included in this announcement. But I think, as I said earlier, it's at least a really good lever to say, why would you say that this is bad and stop it on the international level if you're still doing it at home? And we've definitely seen lots of people point that out in the Canada case already. Cool. And so this is what wasn't listed on the set of questions we sort of talked earlier. So if, it, yeah, no if it's too off base, let me know. But I'm realizing now that as you were talking about sort of the way that you could see this being diverting money to CCS and other stuff like that. Was this announcement saying that they would not send money to companies that are doing, that are oil and gas and coal companies or really just extraction? Because you're right, it does seem a pretty big loophole there if they can still send money to say, quote unquote, help a coal company do carbon capture storage overseas. That strikes me as still a way to get around this idea of not giving money to these companies, right? That's an indirect subsidy uh, and still that will continue and increase coal production ongoing, despite it not necessarily being for like coal extraction. Totally. So I guess there's two things. One is that like in a lot of the coal agreements that I was referencing already there, there actually has been this use of the word unabated quite a bit, but because the technology is so expensive still and like really just makes no sense in the context of coal we haven't actually seen very much of that happen through through public finance and that's been three or four years now and so it doesn't mean it's not a risk of way more money going into carbon capture and storage than before but that's one thing that gives me like a bit of hope where it's just like it's some countries will be like we're not going to sign this unless that's there because of their kind of political positions but that being said there's it's a high level political agreement and so it's up to climate movement and other people in every country to really hold each country accountable as to like how they're going to write it into policy and so yeah that's in the case of canada i i, I think honestly that interpretation would be one that even other governments would be willing to call out of like, oh, we're going to just give loose general corporate support to this company that has some CCS, but mostly does fossil fuels. I think there's like slightly less outrageous 
interpretations of unabated that could get through. And so definitely we'll be on the lookout for that. And I, I am hopeful because I think that people, there's been this pivot in industry messaging to like really focus on net zero and CCS a lot more in the last year. And so I think that's something that people are like actually aware of now where like maybe a year or two ago, it was not really known. Right. That makes sense. So let's presume that this is, you know, all going well. What would the Canadian government have to do in its next few steps for people to be able to feel convinced that this is actually happening? What are the stages that the Canadian government would take off? Like, what's the next box and what's the step? Because it, it, it's a short timeline, right? They're saying by the end of next year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think first, as I said, it's like each country is going to have to write their policy and basically they need to write like a taxonomy or something like that with like basically their in their policy, what is going to be counted as a fossil fuel versus not. So that's where we'll look for like how they're going to interpret unabated and all of these different different pieces. Export Development Canada is like by far the most important institution for this, but it is a good opportunity to like, it, just because some institutions weren't doing this before, doesn't mean they couldn't start. So it's a good opportunity to like also just make sure that is counted across our different ministries and stuff. And then, yeah, I think really the piece around CCS and how they're going to interpret unabated is definitely a big one. And lastly, a little bit around how they'll screen for it. There's like definitely some stuff around a lot of public finance institutions will give money to like private equity funds or other banks. And then making sure that those banks are then not giving money to fossil fuel companies. So there's lots of the details of like how strenuous they're going to be around this. One thing that did worry me is like, Right after the news came out, the natural resources minister Wilkins said, Sin said something about, oh, this money is in the ballpark of like $1 billion a year for Canada. And our calculations are like, oh, it's somewhere between two and $9 billion a year. So obviously that I think is like a red flag for me of like, okay, what are they not counting then to get to that number? But I think because of, yeah, because there's these, so like the UK actually has their policy in place already and some of the other bigger country peers that Canada is typically pretty scared of have policies already that are actually pretty robust. And so we'll be able to hopefully stop them from putting in at least some of the worst loopholes. Right. And so forgive my ignorance, how is Export Development Canada regulated? Is it just something the PMO's office or the minister could just be like, we're doing this? Or does it have to actually go through the whole process of being a bill and getting passed? Yeah, it it should be like EDC ha sets their own policies, like they have a board and they're at arm's length, but then it's through the Minister of Trade that they're regulated. And so I think they should be able to do it without a bill. But I think in the case where for some reason, if EDC like wasn't doing it voluntarily or something like that, like it's possible that to do it through legislation instead. And then also to make sure it is really whole of government and it's not like we do some aid through global affairs and making sure that's actually included as well. And it being in that case, legislation would be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily need to be that. Yeah. Cool. And so I, I, so I have two last questions, but before I get to those two questions, is there anything else about this? Or if you wanted to leave listeners with one specific thing to know about this, either this announcement or to pay attention to, what would, what's the one thing you'd want people to really latch on to from this conversation? Yeah, I really think that it is like a rare piece of good news from COP26. It doesn't mean that the agreements are, you know, going well all of a sudden, but it's this announcement and then one more that we might see later this week around an alliance of countries who have said they're going to stop licensing for, for fossil fuels. Those are the first two like international 
high level statements that have ever really talked about oil and gas and just like a tiny good sign. And I think it is good to celebrate those when we, when we get them. And it doesn't mean saying there's not work to be done still because there's so much, but yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like we can hold on to the all the positive we can get, which is a great segue to my next question, which has nothing to do with any of this. It's just a question I've begun to add to my conversations because ever since I think the middle of this summer, I've it's been on my brain and I am trying to gather as many suggestions as I possibly can, which is, do you suffer from eco-anxiety? For those who may not be aware, eco-anxiety is this idea that it's the way that our ecology and the earth is in free fall at the moment is affecting our mental health. I'm sure there's more specific definition, but that's the very, very broad way of considering it. And so if you do, how do you manage it? Yeah. So yes, I would say I definitely do. I think it's more of a, these days, like a general political like state of the world anxiety almost. It's not just around climate change, but I got involved in climate change organizing in undergrad because I was studying climate science and climate policy and I'm not seeing anything that like dealt with it at the scale that was needed at all. And so the biggest single thing I've ever done to that has helped is that I got involved right when kind of Divest McGill was starting. There were some kind of like older um, or more experienced community organizers in, in that group who I think A, just like really helped me. I mean, A, it's just like a sense of community and people that are also talking about and thinking about things on the same and really reckoning with what's happening. That's just, I think, irreplaceable. But beyond that, I think they also just had a really good kind of justice-based analysis of how this is also just an extension of like racial capitalism and colonialism and all these other things that have happened. And so, yeah, I think I have a kind of weird, although, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's not as counterintuitive as it seems, but I guess a little bit of just placing this moment in the longer history of struggle of, of people. There's just generations of people that have had a lot of uncertainty about what their lives would look like or what their kids' lives would look like, who experienced a lot more direct injustice than I am and who just struggled and did their best to stop that evil, frankly, from happening. And I think for me, at least, it's been actually kind of rewarding or like meaningful to learn about that history and then really try to see myself or hold myself accountable to trying to like do those people justice and honor their legacies, if that makes sense. So really just trying, yes, there's something unique about climate change just in terms of like the scale of things that are at stake, but there's been just also lots of similar struggles in history and there's groups of people who've always done their best to stop them from happening. And I think just somehow seeing myself as part of that legacy or trying to be part of that legacy is I think how I keep myself grounded and it yeah doesn't mean I don't also feel like that definitely goes in waves about how grounded I feel about the kind of situation. But yeah, I guess the very short answer version of that answer is really just to to get involved and, and find people who are doing something about the problem in a way that you find um, exciting or inspiring and to keep trying if you're not finding those people right away. That's like the actual short answer. And then, yeah, maybe learn about social movement history if you have it. Yeah, that's, that's so great. I do think there's something uniquely useful to putting yourself in part of a larger community, both internally and then also actually throughout time. So if folks want to be involved in this particular community, the community that's, that y'all's work at Oil Change International does, how can they stay involved and keep up to date with everything that you're up to? Yeah, our Twitter handle is counterintuitively price of oil, or you can 
I think sign up for our newsletter and we do, yeah, we do a lot of reports that I think are useful for different organizing that's happening. So yeah, I think if you like to read research, we try to make it pretty easy to read at least. Awesome. And what's your website? It is oilchangeinternational.com. And so it is our tradition to give our guests last word on the show, which means that I will say thank you and then you can say whatever you like, and then that will go to the end and music to the show. And so just prepping you for that. But before we go there, thank you so much. Brown Tucker, the public finance campaign co-manager for Oil Change International, speaking on this actually bit of good news uh, that we got out of COP last week. Thank you so much for being here and your last word. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I guess one thing I didn't touch on, but I feel like actually is important is also just the international legacy that Canada has. And I talked about fracking in Colombia. I think probably folks will have heard of like how many mining companies are headquartered in Canada and just the damage Canada does overseas. And so, yeah, I think as much as it's, we can, it's also really important to push Canada to end this finance and, and support for fossil fuels at home. I think just like really don't want to yeah, undercut that. Hopefully this is the end to some of that exploitation internationally. That's really been Canada's legacy. That was a long last word, but um, thanks so much for having me and yeah, have a good week.